Put that coffee down. Coffee's for closers only. Hello, and welcome to Coffee with Closers, a podcast featuring a team of public relations professionals at Pinkston in Washington, D.C. From media personalities to pioneers in healthcare and disruptors in business, we talk with some of America's most interesting people who tell interesting stories. So grab a cup of coffee and let's get started. This is Coffee with Closers. We have a very special guest joining us today. Dan Boggio is the founder and executive chairman of PBK, a Houston-based award-winning architectural firm that plans and designs world-class, environmentally responsible, and elegant facilities for K-12 schools and higher education, as well as for corporations, sport and entertainment, government, and civic organizations. Founded in 1981, PBK is the largest K-12 design firm in the United States with 19 offices located throughout the country. Over its 40-year history, the company has completed more than 18,000 projects and received more than 450 design awards for its work in educational architecture. A native of Detroit, Michigan, Dan comes from a family of architects and his work, especially in education, is born out of a deep passion to uh, create facilities that produce healthy, productive, and equitable outcomes for students, educators, and the community. In that spirit, he has committed himself tirelessly to address some of the most complex issues facing public education today and strongly supports various charitable and humanitarian causes of which he has received noteworthy recognition, including from UNICEF. Dan Boggio is a closer. Dan, welcome to Coffee with Closers. How you doing? I am doing great today, Steve. Thanks for asking. All right. Welcome welcome to D.C. I know you had an early flight up from, from Houston, and <clears throat> it's great to have you here. Wonderful. So let's start with, um, as I was preparing for this interview, I, I, you know, I visited the St. Louis Arch a couple months ago, <clears throat> beautiful structure. And I thought to myself, you know, we, we build a lot of great structures. We have beautiful, uh, you know, facilities and monuments around the world, whether it's the St. Louis Arch, the Eiffel Tower, you know, the Freedom Tower, you name it, it's there. But I think that we go to these places and a lot of people... They know very little about who built them, and they know very even less about why. <laughs> and so uh, since we're talking architecture today, I want to start at the foundation of your professional career. Um, you come from a family of architects. And so what inspired your career in uh, facility design? Well, what really inspired my career, I was fortunate to be in a family of, uh, that had multiple architects. There were four architects in my immediate family, including my father. And the fact is, ever since I was um, a very uh, young guy, I mean, even in grade school, the architecture agreed with me. I enjoyed drawing and I watched my family members involved in the profession and uh, there was never a choice. It just instantly agreed with me. And, uh, and so I decided to pursue the profession. That's great. Just a quick follow up. You started at a young age. What what was your 
before you started PBK and building schools of the future, was there anything that you built or designed at a young age that you're I, incredibly proud of? <laughs> <laughs> well, having a family in architecture, I was able to get a jump on some things. And so uh, on weekends when I was in high school and even junior high, I used to uh, I used to work in my dad's office. And in those days, that was pre-computer. And so I used to trace drawings. We used to do tracing so that we could do the air conditioning plans. You'd have to trace the floor plans. So I did that. And so, um, so that was something that uh, got me interested, uh, very interested in the profession. I had to jump on things. Um, when I was um, in high school, I started doing um, architectural plans for houses, which is uh, relatively easy to do. And so, uh, but it taught me a lot. I interfaced with people. So in my mind, I had clients and I had to keep them happy. And uh, uh, so that was something that gave me a little bit of a jump on the profession. Great. Thanks so much. Yeah, I love that. Dan, I I got the chance to visit you in your Houston office not too long ago. And I come walking into this beautiful building, come up to your floor. I see, I see all the values of PBK on the wall. It was just remarkable. And you were telling me a story about, you know, when I got into this building the first time, I had to convince the landlord to give me 400 square feet to get started. And I, I just love that story because I look at the immense footprint you have, not only there, but with 19 offices throughout the country and you're expanding still. Um, how did you go for them? From that kind of humble beginning where you're talking your way into getting some space to now you're building these fantastic facilities, you know, across the country. That's kind of a remark. How did you get going? What happened? Well, let me tell you, basically, I was uh, I, I had a jump on the profession having architects in my immediate family and also something that I felt gave me a real foundation for um, the concepts surrounding the founding of our firm is I came from. I came from Detroit, Michigan at a time when unemployment, it was the unemployment capital of the world. And so uh, I saw unemployment of 15 and 16 percent in that city. And as a result of that, um, I did know architects in the city as a result of um, the family I grew up in. And I saw wonderful architectural firms. I saw wonderful architects that were just struggling to stay alive. And one of the things that they did in such a competitive environment, they formed a system of serving clients that we don't normally see in our profession. And to fast forward, I then moved to Texas after getting my formal education in Michigan. I moved to Texas. I thought it was be a better environment for a young man with a degree to get started. And uh, as I started working for other architectural firms in this environment that had been extremely busy and and an extremely healthy economy for literally decades with a lot of people moving there, uh, moving in that kept the economy healthy, I saw the architectural profession there. Frankly, I just saw them taking advantage of their clients. I didn't think they served their clients properly. I thought they... Um, I thought that their services were very, very confined to just strictly uh, some technical services Mm -hmm. related to the building as opposed to an extremely comprehensive approach, which is what architects used to do decades ago. So I saw an opportunity to, um, to start a firm. And at a very young age, I jumped ship from the architectural firm I was working for and started a firm with the idea of uh, two main ideas. Number one, that we were going to take customer service to another level. We were going to mm. be uh, the resource for our clients. And number two, we weren't, were not going to confine our services to what I'll cons- 
what I'll say is a standard architectural contract. Whenever you build a building, there's a lot of outside perimeter forces acting on that, uh, on that exercise. And we thought, our thought was in starting the firm that we needed to understand all of those things acting on what we, acting on our core business. And we needed to become experts at those related mm-hmm. items. And we, mm-hmm. more than anything, we needed to set our focus on our client's mission, not our mission. And we felt like if we could achieve our client's mission through the buildings that we were designing, that our mission would automatically be achieved. And so with those two things, um, we began the we began our practice with those two ideas. And uh, like any startup business, the first couple of years were tough. And I think, I think after about uh, two years. I think I hired my first employee and um, and uh, and and basically uh, started really uh, practicing in a manner consistent with what I just mentioned: high level of customer service and very comprehensive services, and uh, with a real focus on our clients' mission statement. And that word started spreading and. Um, at a time when architects didn't have a lot of marketing people and there weren't RFQs and RFPs, it was kind of word of mouth that got um, architects their business. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And that word that. spread. And quite frankly, my phone started ringing. Ah. And as the phone started ringing and I was able to get <laughs> more and more business, that allowed me to bring in more and more professionals. And it allowed me to expand uh, the types of services that we were offering. It also allowed Allowed me to take our customer service to uh, another level. And one of the things that I'm really proud of is a lot of architectural firms will emphasize, uh, they'll budget hours, they'll look at the fee on a project and they'll budget hours and uh, and then they issue those budgets to their project architects and tell them to stay under the hours. Um, even as large as our firm is today, that's a practice. And we're probably the largest firm in the country that doesn't monitor hours. As we say, we don't count hours, we count smiles. And we learned a long time ago, if we have a culture of pleasing clients, and if we have a culture of trying to exceed their expectations, that they will return to us in a big, big way. And that's where real profitability Mm -hmm. is in a Mm -hmm. business. It's not in trying to milk every hour into a project or try to limit hours. It's to get the big projects and to keep your office growing and to keep the success coming into your office, the, the, uh, the large projects. And so that's been our philosophy. It's worked famously for us. We're proud to say that um, we've always had uh, um, the reputation of being a firm that uh, exceeds uh, expectations from a client standpoint. And I'm, you know, proud to say that, you know, we've always had the result of that is we've all always had the resources to keep on growing. One of the other things I want to mention is that, um, to do what we do in education and we do K-12 and we also do colleges, you have to be passionate about what you're doing. And we have a group of people and it's part of, um, a litmus test that they, Uh, that they have to pass to get hired at our firm. But you have to be passionate about education. You have to be passionate about kids. And you have to understand that even though it's a small piece, facilities can affect student achievement. If we have the right facilities, I could show you research where if if the the facilities are such that that a, a kid can really 
relate to a building, relate to uh, what it looks like when they drive by, relate to what it's like on the inside. Mm -hmm. We can engage that student. They can be engaged with their school in a way that uh, changes their life. I mean, it makes it can make them good students for the rest of their lives simply through uh, creating some exciting environments, as opposed to some of the schools that were built in the 50s that had, you know, ter- white terrazzo floors and white concrete block walls that looked very institutional. Um, and it's very easy to walk in a building like that and not feel any type of kinship with what's going on in the building. Some of the environments that we see today that we're proud of is where we can really create an environment where kids come in and they think it's fun. And, and um, I know this, this is um, not uncommon in some of the schools you see today. The schools that kids go to are their nicest environment they'll see in their life yeah. in some yeah. areas, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, and they can't wait to get there. They, they just that. love it. I was going to ask, too, um, when I think about, I was sitting in that conference room, and I'll tell you what went through my head. This conference room is bigger than when you started. It is. Yeah. And it was uh, kind of amazing. You know, I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm thinking, how do you go from there? And I was, as I walked around, you were taking me around. There were some things on the wall that describe those features that set you apart. When you talk about, hey, we're not going to be just a traditional architectural firm. We've got more to offer. And if we're going to compete, it's not on the basic. I mean, this is how I hear you describing it, not on the basics of architecture and design, but on the basics of all these values statements that you had. Can you talk a little bit about not just the fact that you intend to serve better, but how you do it? Like talk a little bit about the magic that I see written on the walls and reflected in your people. Sure. Well, let me mention something. We call that the secret and it's on our <laughs> wall and we actually put it up on our wall in, on, uh, in the form of aluminum plaques. We wanted something that was pretty permanent and it occurs in various locations throughout our office, but there's one central location where it's actually on aluminum plaques and it's the core ideologies of practice. When we started the firm that we said we were going to adhere to and we ask every Everybody in our organization to adhere to these core ideologies. And the first one is, and there's 12 of them, I'll talk about a couple of them so I don't bore you, but the first one is, is to understand your real job. And your real job is to make your client successful, not to make our firm successful, not to make yourself successful within the firm. That's going to be a byproduct that's going to happen automatically if you make your client successful. So we don't want focus on internal operations. We want focus on external operations and the internal will take care of itself. So uh, that's one of the laws we live by. Some of the other things are um, whenever you build a building, there's a lot of different folks involved. There's a lot of different codes that are interpreted by different people in different ways. There's all types of consulting engineers, whether it's structural, mechanical, electrical, plumbing, technology, technology consultants, civil engineers. And so, and the process is, isn't always perfect. There needs to be a captain of the ship that is always willing to stand up and say, this is my responsibility. And so that's one of the other things we do when a problem occurs, whether it's a contractor problem that they created, whether it's a civil engineer, whether it's one of our consultants, one of our practice, um, one of the principles that we ask everyone to practice by, no matter what problem occurs, assume it's a PBK problem, take complete ownership of it and get it solved and get it solved at no cost to the owner. And there's always a way to do that. If there is a problem on a job site and there's a contract for construction, there's two things that we say in our office. It's either a design problem 
or it's a contractor problem. In either event, it's the architect's responsibility to get it fixed. It's our responsibility if it's a design issue and if it's a contractor issue, it's our responsibility to get to make sure the contractor gets it taken care of at no cost to the owner. So that's something else. That's another one of our core ideologies. Then we have some fun things that we, um, if, if a client calls, um, you have to return the client's call in one minute. And if you, if you can't take the call and if you can't return it in one minute, you have to return it in two. And if you can't return it in two minutes, you have to return it in three. And so, and clients call cell phones. Now when they were calling the front desk, uh, we have a receptionist that, of course, would go first to the person's desk that the client was trying to get in touch with. And if they weren't there, then there would be an all call. And if the all call didn't get a response pretty quickly, we had people running in restrooms trying to find this person because nothing was important as that uh, client call. So that was just kind of a fun thing on, on uh, some of the on ways that the, that we operated. And then something else is... Uh, that we wanted to, um, uh, some of the other laws that we live by is uh, that we wanted to, um, we, we wanted to always train people to be leaders, but they also needed to dress like leaders. They needed to act like leaders. And so we actually had some uh, training on uh, when you walk in a job trailer on a, when a project's under construction, how you enter that trailer and how you uh, how you take command of the meeting and how you take command of um, uh, meeting minutes. Whenever there's a meeting, meeting minutes are required. They're required to go out uh, in a half a day. If the meeting's in the morning, the meeting minutes need to be out that afternoon. If the meeting's in the afternoon, the meeting minutes need to be out before noon the next day. So a host of practice things like that to show clients we're on top of things and that we care and that we're going to be timely with our work. I had... Before you jump, I had one other question. I want Go to add a follow-up. Yeah. yeah. Was, it's amazing, you know, we talk about your expansion and your growth. How did you get into schools? Like when you, you take your skill set, your background, you know, 400 square feet and go from there. How did you land to be like the leading architect for schools? Well, how did that well one of the things is, uh, number one, I, um, um, when I first started the firm, I mentioned I struggled the first couple of years. It was... Um, you know, I was in my mid twenties, and uh, it was tough to get school people. It's tough to get school boards to say, "Hey, we're going to hire this this uh, young punk here." So, uh, so the fact of the matter is, I did some, I did a little bit of commercial work, and um, schools just always agreed with me. I thought I wanted to work with honorable people. There are no more honorable people than school people. They're not. They're there for the right reasons. They're not mm -hmm. there because they think they can make a fast buck. So that was certainly something that, um, that was first and foremost, that's what attracted me to the school mm -hmm. business. It was um, just dealing with wonderful, wonderful people. And then the other thing, which is just a practicality of business, um, the, worst, uh, the worst curse that you could put on an architect is to make them um, experts in uh, corporate headquarters buildings, because uh, when you do corporate headquarters buildings, uh, a corporation is going to build a new headquarters every 20 or 30 years. One of the things I loved about the school business is they are continuous users of architects year yeah. after year mm -hmm. after year. Yeah. So, um, so, so being a school architect is really wonderful from a standpoint of continuous work 
um, year after year, probably surpassed only by um, accountants that happen to see April 15th every year. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I love it. Quick f- follow-up to this. When you're <clears throat> designing schools, um, talk to us a little bit about the process of how that works. Does the school district come to you? Do they have a say in what they're looking for? Like, we are going to be a STEM school, so we need something that's going to reflect the work environment of, you know, how does that process work? Because I, I don't know if school boards, and I know they vote on the mo- they vote on the money and the plans, but can you walk us through the mechanics of how Yeah, that and let me, I'm so happy you mentioned that because historically architects would go meet with clients, they'd sit down at a table, they would get some basic requirements, then they go back to their office um, in isolation and design some buildings, they may do one or two schemes and come and show it to a client and get their response to it. We have another process that we developed and it goes with our client service. We don't believe that we should ever be designing buildings in isolation. So we created many, many years ago, a design charrette process where we actually ask all the stakeholders of a new building to get in a room with us for a couple of days on and off. And what we do is we bring a team of architects on site and we start out with um, we start out with setting goals with our clients, and as we're designing the building, they're part of the process. So let me give you an example. We start out. If I took you through one of these typical design exercises, the first thing we would do is a tour of the industry on the internet. A tour mm-hmm. of the industry meaning let's look at what best practices has been for the building type at hand. That's one thing we do. And then we start setting goals about with their own building. Let's, what do we want to, what do we want to say to the community with this building? When we pass by this building, what is it? Is it a, um, sometimes we'll use a car analogy. Do we want to send a message that we're building a Chevrolet? Do we want to send a message that we're building a, you know, a Mercedes? What's, what do we want to send to the community? We then start ascertaining the requirements. We start talking to them about goals, which departments are best being adjacent to other departments. And we start building these diagrams and getting agreement and consensus from the group on what we call the adjacency diagrams. And then we get into the details with Hmm. them being part of it every step of the way. If you can imagine a design process that lasts over a two-day period where the client is in with us for about 45 minutes in an interactive session, then they leave for a couple hours as we do some work, then they're back for 45 minutes. And if I had to summarize the up, if I had to summarize the whole process, it would be um, that the client is actually a co-designer with us. As we like to say, um, we're experts at bricks and sticks, but <laughs> nobody knows yeah. the function of that building better than the stakeholders. And our job is to extract that information from the stakeholders in a way that we could never create it on our own, extract that information, and then use our expertise to take that information and turn it into Mm, bricks and sticks. Wow, that's great. So, All right, we're going to turn, keep on the school theme here. The U.S. spends about $110 billion a year on school infrastructure. And I understand that school facilities represents the second largest sector of public infrastructure spending after highways. It is a booming business from what I from what I gather. And recent events over the last couple of years have really brought the need for intelligent design schools into the forefront. Um, You know, there's a dire need for modernization um, and because the delivery of education is changing. Talk to us a little bit more about 
how we've gone from the traditional red brick schoolhouse from 40, 50 years ago, even beyond, to campuses of the future and some of the innovations you and your team are are bringing to to impact this this transformation. Um, you've said that you want schools to be a student's favorite place to be and a place that fosters a lifetime love of learning. How do you do that? Well, let me mention, <clears throat> first of all, we we uh, schools have been deinstitutionalized. It used to be back in the 50s and 60s during the baby boom generation. Um, schools were built. They had an internal um, structure educationally. They had an internal curriculum educationally. And every student was forced to be put into that structure. And every student was forced into a class setting uh, and basically um, was lectured to by teachers and then given a quiz or a test every six or eight weeks. Okay, it's very different today. Today, uh, we actually allow students, the educational community actually allows students to move at their own pace. Uh, we don't see as much lecturing. Uh, we used to call it a sage on the stage, being a teacher. Now the teacher is <laughs> a guide on the side where students are working on real world problems in groups of five and seven and eight kids. And there's multiple groups working on problems they can relate to as opposed to just information that they were memorizing mm -hmm. uh, long enough for a test. And then uh, ultimately, after the test is over three weeks later, they've completely forgotten about it. So one of the things that's very interesting about the change in educational delivery is, is to make it applicable to the student. That's number one, to allow them to move in a direction that they're uh, that, that they're most interested in and in a direction where. Um, they have a particular aptitude for some certain aspect of the education. And that's brought out when these problems occur, when they're working on real world problems. Let me give you a very interesting example of one real world problem. And by the way, this is interdisciplinary. That is all the disciplines, math, science, social studies, mm -hmm. geography, all come together in one problem. And so, which is, uh, and let me give you an example of a real world problem. And this is, a, this is an actual problem. A group of kids, they were, these were uh, fifth graders, um, had, to make a, um, had to make a proposal to NASA, and they wanted to win the contract on, <laughs> oh, get, awesome. on getting, a, um, getting a spaceship to the moon and back. And so they had to write the proposal, and there were certain guidelines on uh, the verbal part of the proposal, but they also had to put costs in there. And one of the things that they did was they were given some basic information on, uh, for lack of a better term, how many miles per gallon their uh, space vehicle got. So they uh, they would figure, you know, the math part of it is is figuring out the distance to the moon, how many miles per gallon, how many gallons of rocket fuel would they need, the cost of rocket fuel. So that was a math analysis. The English analysis of that same real world problem was all the pros, everything that they had to write uh, to capture the attention of uh, the government to get this contract. Right. And then there was the geography class talked about where this would best be, uh, you know, what, um, uh, what, 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 uh, where do you Country, launch from? Yeah, where, yeah, where, should, where, where should the, the rocket yeah. be launched from? You know, <laughs> right. what, con what continent and where should it, uh, and how many revolutions around the earth and a host of things. Wow. So something they could all relate to and something that, a, you know, for a 
fourth grader or fifth grader to be dealing with with a rocket and dealing with going to the moon is something that's a little bit more interesting than perhaps just some information yeah. that yeah, they're doing math equations. Absolutely. You know what else I love about that is yeah. uh, we would joke that you go all the way through high school and you get in trouble if you're cheating, working with somebody else. I mean, obviously they don't want you copying test yeah. results. But we make you work by yourself, and then you get out into the real world, and if you work by yourself, you're not helpful. So true. You need to work in teams. So I love that story. You in know, fact, an- another yeah. thing is when you work in teams, this is some of the kids automatically become instructors because they're instructing to the student next to them. Oh, right. interesting. Okay, and yeah. that's, uh, and if you look at what retention is when someone has to teach somebody something, the retention of the information compared to just receiving the information is very different. So. Yeah, and on that note, <clears throat> we talk about schools of the future. Yeah. There are a lot of kids today who are not going to college. You know, they're right. in this career and technical path. And, you know, I guess when we think about career and technical path that, you know, is usually wood shop and maybe auto mechanics, but that's changing now, right? We've got students want to become doctors, nurses, healthcare professionals. Are you building and designing those kind of atmospheres where kids are getting the real world, at least the room of what it looks like? Or? We are. And that's been a big, big movement in this country over the last several years. Yeah. And, uh, and let me just tell you one big sea change, and that is what we're doing in public education right now is we're actually trying to um, ascertain what a student's uh, real passion is in life, what their interest is. Yeah. The educators will tell you if you can, um, if a student can pursue something they're extremely interested in, something that they're passionate about, then uh, they can create a successful life for themselves at a much higher percentage than if they were, you know, being uh, lawyers or being um, architects or whatever because their parents wanted them to be. So, so that's um, and so when it comes to career and technical education, uh, there's a lot of exploration into what students in a particular geographic zone want. If you want, if you're in an, in an industrial part of a city. Sometimes there's a lot more of industrial type professions and uh, in other parts of the city, there may be things that are much more high tech. And then in some parts, um, we will see uh, dental professions, we'll see nursing professions, we'll see medical professions all incorporated in this career and technology training. So and that's been a that's been a big, big movement. And virtually all the school districts that we work for in some form in some form have done, have, have um, installed some sort of career and, tra- and technology component. Uh, many of them have built big, big buildings related to career and technology. Mm-hmm. So I think it's wonderful. I think it's allowing kids to, um, it's allowing kids to pursue a path that they're good at. Uh, it allows them to pursue a path that they're uh, passionate about. Um, and it would take, um, it would take kids that would normally drop out of school and, uh, and they end up finishing school and they come out with some type of a, of a very useful trade. And you may or may not know that there's a lot of our trades that where there's a severe shortage of, right. of, of workers. And so this is going to help fill that shortage as yeah. well. As a follow-up to that, <clears throat> um, there are a lot of real downstream benefits to these, the new school design and the schools of the future. 
that really have nothing to do with books. That's that's what I'm hearing today from you. Uh, but studies have shown that uh, adaptable, appealing, engaging, and immersive learning environments also lead to a whole host of other positive outcomes for students. Test scores up, attendance up, health up. From your vantage point, what is the data telling us? Well, I think... <clears throat> I think it goes back to the student engagement. You mentioned yeah. immersive environments, another uh, another big movement in our country today. And uh, why do we want immersive environments? Simple, simply because we can we can engage kids, and we know that if we can um, if we can engage kids with school, if they can want to go to school, if they can like to go to school, then uh, we know we can change their attitude towards school. They'll become good students for the rest of their school career and then want to continue on with that same success and that same progress. Yeah, I had, you know, I want to pivot just a little bit and talk about education and kind of at a macro level, you know, right. not not at the school level, but kind of the system. And we were talking earlier and you mentioned, you know, United States, somewhere around the 50 percentile, you know, we're kind of in the middle of the pack, if you right. will, in terms of international performance. What is the outcome we get for the investment in education uh, compared to international competitors, if you will? Here in, you know, in the Beltway, mm -hmm. uh, that's described as a national security risk. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the future of the United States, we've always had a technological advantage, um, our ability to drive, you know, great economic results, be very productive, um, has allowed us to lead the world, not just the free world, but the world and be the envy, you know, of countries around the globe. Maybe just give an assessment at the macro level about what you think about education and where we need to go. Well, let me say that there's been a lot done in the way of education reform in the last 25 years. And the things that are driving that is the fact that the United States uh, even though we spend a lot more educating our kids than any other country in the world, um, as Jim just mentioned, we're testing at about the 50 percentile. That is, half the countries in this world have students that are achieving at a higher level than, uh, than U.S. students, and half the countries are below the U.S. And when you look at the effort that we put into it, we realize that, gosh, it shouldn't be like that. The United States leads this world in so many ways, and while we may never be number one, we should be at least in the top uh, 25 or top 10 percentile in this particular case. Um, as school reform started coming into being about 25 years ago, um, the, what really gave rise to that movement was these the statistics I just mentioned and the fact that if you plotted that over time, we were actually continuing to lose ground, particularly in the maths and sciences. So, um, so what I see happening in education is the educators have responded appropriately. They've made big changes. We talked about the deinstitutionalization of schools. I could talk to you about a program called IO where uh, students are followed around. This is where, with parental consent, of course, but uh, they're followed around electronically so that over a period of years you can ascertain their real passion and what they're really interested in. And we know from research mm -hmm. if we can present a student with what they're passionate about, a program that allows them to express their passion and, if, and also allow them 
to uh, have a program where they have a mental aptitude for that program. If we can mix those two things together, we have the technology to capture that information. The educators have chosen to move in that direction. In some cases, there's some very interesting work being done in some school districts. Um, But basically, we see a focus by educators on improving the educational system. And if I had to just make a statement that would just be uh, sort of a veil over the entire movement, that veil would be um, would be humanizing uh, the entire educational process, humanizing it, meaning deinstitutionalizing it and appealing to the individual students and allowing those students to become engaged and providing an environment where they can be engaged and then providing a providing the programs that they're most passionate about and allowing them to um, to, to uh, pursue those programs in a way that's not someone lecturing to them, but they're doing it in a group setting with their peers, re- working on real world problems that they can relate to. All of those things together have been uh, implemented, designed by our educators. And we think it's making, we don't, just think the research is showing that it's making a difference. So, um, so we think as time goes on, we're going to see continued progress. We're going to see more and more progress as uh, uh, toward us, um, you know, raising our yeah, stature, raising and, the standards. Yeah. Yes, I, I think about um, it's almost like mass customization, like we see in every other service industry. Sure, where you're you're helping to deliver a service or a capability based on individual preference and. Uh, uh, in this case, aptitude, right? Sure. If you're wired in a particular way to a, towards a particular profession, like being an architect, wouldn't right. it be great if you had the program and training inside of your curriculum that would just fuel that passion and allow you to kind of serve at your highest capacity, you know, where you could really make a difference? Absolutely. I wanted to ask another question that kind of relates to this. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've been around you long enough to know that your innovation goes way beyond architecture and design. And you actually help meet the needs of the school, the macro education system, all the way down to the individual schools. Talk a little bit about the nonprofit you created as you imagine where does education need to go and talk a little bit about that, please. That's great. Let me first say there's a, there's a lot of research in this country that basically is uh, sitting on file servers and in some cases in file cabinets on things that can help increase student achievement. And so working with a group of colleagues, working with other folks that are involved in the school industry, we thought we should start to bring that information forward and put it in one central location where it can be easily disseminated. And we thought that would help the entire educational process. But then something very interesting happened as we were starting to do that. We Uh, we came across some people at Google who approached us and said, you know, we get asked by superintendents all the time what a school of the future is going to look like. Would PBK be interested in helping us pull together the right individuals in this country and developing a school of the future? And uh, and we were already pulling some research together, and it was something that just fit with us. And it's our passion. It truly was our passion. And so we decided to pursue that. So right now, um, we have been working with Google and a host of uh, facility experts, 
and educational experts and educators from across the country, uh, educational institutions from across the country, and we're working on um, a school of the future. Uh, as this is, as we started working on this, we decided we were going to turn it into a 501c3, and we want to be mm-hmm. able to have one central location where the very best practices are easy to be discovered on this um, in this one location, and be it a website, seminars, um, symposiums that we would conduct, and uh, with the goal of trying to help change education in this country. And so, uh, so that's so. This school of the future is something that's very exciting. Our firm's working on it. Google's working on it. Uh, we've had the pleasure of having uh, Citadel Sciences involved through Jim Trafficant, and it's been uh, and uh, the, this covers every aspect of the school of the future. It's not just the educational delivery. It's um, it's the safety and security of a building. We have a safety and security component. We know that that can raise test scores and that can increase a student's engagement in a school if they feel extremely safe. Mm -hmm. It's about indoor air quality. There's some very impressive research on what happens to student achievement when they have um, a high quality of indoor air as opposed to some of the contaminated air that we have in some buildings that don't bring in enough fresh air and don't have the right air cleaning techniques. And so it's about every aspect of not only educational delivery, the educational environment, outdoor learning, which we know uh, the pandemic has taught us that, uh, and we discovered this as a result of the pandemic, we got kids outside and then we found out their test scores were higher than when they were inside. And so uh, so amazing. a certain amount of their day needs to be outside in nature. And so, uh, so very interesting. So pulling all this information together, we've taken, we're, we've um, assembled what we consider to be the country's best experts in their respective fields and formed a nonprofit and um, and continue to work on this uh, school of the future effort. Wow. That's great. Just, just real quick. Um, did you want to say something, Jim? You good? Uh, yeah, I'm fine. Oh, good. Um, just real quick. Uh, from the, the moment that you get the first call about a school or design or plan to when the students first walk in the door? What's what's the time frame of that? If it's an elementary school, it's about 18 months. Uh, oh, wow. From the time we get the call till the time the school is under construction is about six to seven months. And then it's about 12 months for construction. If it's a high school, it's going to be almost three years. It's almost mm-hmm. a year doing the drawings. And then the construction of a comprehensive high school is going to run about two years. And then a junior high high school is in between. So junior high school will be about two years to 26 months from the time we get to call till the time uh, the school district wow. gets the keys <clears throat> and is ready to operate. Wow, so. that's great. So a uh, couple last questions. <clears throat> Dan, as you think about your work um, and all that, and of all the needs you're you're meeting to improve the in-classroom performance, because I think what you're doing is like SpaceX stuff for education. It I really, agree, it, totally. It, it really, it really, <laughs> yeah. it really is. It really is SpaceX for for education. So, is there anything that keeps you up at night in terms of what are some of the unmet needs that kind of you're grappling with? Things you're seeing down the road. What's over the hill? What's over the hill? You know, 
the, the things, the only thing that keeps me up at night is time. Yeah. I wish we could advance this. We see, uh, we know there's going to be continuous progress made. We see it across the country. We see the practices changing. Unfortunately, it, it, it takes generational change for mm-hmm. that type of change. We've got a lot of infrastructure that's got a long memory on the way things used to be. And so not unlike what happened to technology when it first started to enter schools in the in the early and mid 90s, uh, we didn't have limitations with the technology as much as we had limitations with uh, the people that were teaching and the people that right. were surrounding the school because they weren't uh, they weren't part part of the digital generation and they kept instead of embracing the technology, they embraced the old way of doing things. And it took a generational change for technology to make huge mm-hmm. strides. And we see the same thing with a lot of these changes. I think as time goes on, um, as time goes on, we're going to see tremendous progress. But that's the thing I wish I could change. Keeps me up a little bit thinking, okay, how can we accelerate this? And how can we get past those types of obstacles? Interesting. One last question, though, get, give you the closing word. Um, Our focus today was on schools. I know you do a lot of other things, uh, civic, government, uh, sports and entertainment. Talk just a little bit about what are the needs there? What are are the things that people look for? And I'll give you a little segue into this. Um, I'm trying to see every baseball stadium in the country. And we have a couple of friends trying to do this. And every time we say, did you go to this park or did you go to that park? It's never how is the game? It's never how is the food? It was Tell me about the stadium, <laughs> you know? Sure. Uh, so so just talk a little bit about kind of, you know, when I, we go to the stadium, we go to the theater, we walk into our civic places of meeting, what, what, do, what do they want? Well, let me say, uh, for any of those types of facilities, we always go back to, uh, we always go back to trying to meet the goals of, 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 of the stakeholders. So let me take a stadium and let me tell you how we got started in that. Whenever you're in the education business, a certain amount of your certain amount of your work is going to be sports. And so Mm -hmm. we felt like it was enough of a specialty. We wanted to develop a sports expertise. So we broke that off as a separate piece so we could have people that were quite frankly, people that were passionate about sports that, and we wanted them to be working on these sports facilities day after day and week after week. So some of the things that are interesting about uh, the sports facilities, we try and achieve the goals of, of the district, but one some of the design things that we're, um, that we're spending a lot of time on is the um, is is creating an environment that's a little bit more than just a sports facility. That there's that the concourse is much is varied. There's not just uh, there's not just um, vending areas up there or a place to get a hot dog or a coke. But there's also um, some allied facilities up there. There's conference rooms. There's hospitality mm-hmm. rooms. But there's conference rooms. You can come to the stadium early, and there's other activities that you can do that you can uh, that 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 you can have at that, at that sports facility. So, um, uh, same thing with theaters. We try to make the theaters in our, yeah. uh, in our schools, in our school districts, we try to take a, um, an approach that, um, for lack of a better term, I'll call it a commercial approach. If you walk into one of these theaters, we want it to look like, uh, you know, we want it to look like a theater in Hollywood with all of the, yeah. uh, <laughs> we want to get people, we want to get the students excited about the entire drama program. And that doesn't mean just creating some empty seats in a stage. It means creating an entire environment that perhaps will stimulate their, that. yeah. that'll stimulate the drama in them. If you build it, they will come. Absolutely. Yeah. The thing I love about, um, 
the way you, when we get into these discussions, is the experience of that design, not sure. just the function. True. And so, uh, you know, everything from, you mentioned taking learning outside right. and also your innovation and biophilic design, bringing the outside into the building. So, uh, you know, in a lot of these uh, schools, as you mentioned, there's certain parts of our country where the, the fuel to a future is the school building itself Absolutely. and that experience. And I just, I just love what you're doing. Dan, it's a, you know, a privilege to have you on uh, the show today. I want to give you uh, anything we missed or you got any closing thoughts, anything else you want to cover? Just that uh, I just want to say that how impressed I am with you guys uh, exploring this subject. I think it's fantastic. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say that uh, we're so excited about Jim here being part of the school of the future. Uh, especially knowing the um, what his company does, what Citadel Sciences does, and knowing that uh, what indoor air, air quality does to student achievement, what a yeah. vital, vital component that can be in a school of the future. So thank you so much for that. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for allowing us to participate. You bet. And, and Dan, thanks for joining us today. Uh, it's always a privilege, and today is no exception. We really admire your work, appreciate you. all you've done for the next generation and the impact that you will have for generations to come as a result of the innovation behind your design and, uh, and your team. Thank you. It's absolutely my pleasure being here today. Thank you for allowing me to be here. Yeah, absolutely. for sure. That's great. So I'm Jim Trafficant. And I'm Steve Burke. We'll see you next time on Coffee with Closers. <laughs>